perfect. Sorry, I'm learning how to use this, so I know. And there's already people watching. They're like, "What is this guy doing again?" Um, let me real quickly read you uh, hey, Psalm 119, verse 33, which says, uh, "Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart." And one thing I need to do, I'm going to get up really quickly and put this on Bible study because. Um, there we That's go. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't have the camera in the right place, so it would help if I did that. Um, let's see here. Um, where was I? Uh, I shall keep it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread. For your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Um, before we open in prayer, I want to read you first uh, something that a lady she emailed me today. And I asked if I could have permission to read this. And I won't eat, read the whole thing, but I want you to get the point of uh, uh, her situation and uh, another person attending here at Superior Word. She said, Pastor Charlie, I've been watching your church services and following your teachings and prophecy updates. I live in Charlotte, which is where I went to... Uh, uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary which is in Matthews which is just south of uh, Charlotte and, uh, and she said uh, she's been born again for 47 years she's single and has no children she lived with her mom who's her best friend who had Alzheimer's and uh, as she couldn't be left alone I quit work and everything to cater for her and she went to be with the Lord in 2008 I know I will see her again but since then I've been pretty much alone and unable to find employment and now in my 60s it's so hard um, I'll go down a little further. She uh, uh, had to leave the church she was in because they weren't teaching the word. She went to all kinds of churches. One was teaching out and out apostasy. Um, uh, another one falling on the floor, you know, crazy stuff there. Um, another uh, uh, anything but prophetic or the rapture. They just wanted to keep building for the coming kingdom and dominion, you know, replacement theology. And um, uh, anyway, I don't want to, she said some nice things about our church, and I don't want to read all that, but um, uh, she, she said that, where was it? I would like to join via online. She said, yes, I'd love to have a local church, but I can't find one. In other words, she wants to be a member of this church, and so I, I, uh, I, I emailed back, and I told her, well, you're welcome. And, I said, and she said she'll be watching the Bible study, and her second email, she said all she has is an iPad, and it's actually clipped together to hold it together, but she's, she's uh able to still use it so um anyway her name is jill and we want to keep her in prayer as one of our our members here yes Amen. tell her to go to jeremiah 33 3 that's a street yes that's the address jeremiah 33 3 and, and i that's think it's calvary very fundamental church oh good in in charlotte in charlotte okay jeremiah 33 3 they had it to change the city changed it Jeremiah is that right? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. Well, there's apparently a good church up there at Jeremiah 33 3. So uh, in uh, Charlotte. That's so, the street. Tell her it's the right. street name. Yeah. She, she can hear you. Oh. And um, uh, let's see here. So. That's uh, the verse too. It's, yeah. Landscape. It's the verse, and they changed the street number to Jeremiah 33 3. And apparently there's a good church up there. Um, so I've got that. And then I also want to say that um, the guy that we highlighted just Sunday. On the prophecy update, a guy in Germany, all right, his name is Lothar, and just today I got an email from him that he's got cancer. Oh, and, you know, instead of worrying about himself, he's worrying about a guy he's ministering to. 
So it shows you the kind of caliber of the person he is. So we want to add him into our prayers as well. And I'll try to remember to mention him again this weekend. But uh, Lothar. It's actually Lothar, but we pronounce the TH, they don't. It becomes hard. Anyway, uh, so it's just, you know, the world just, things like that happen. So um, uh, anyway, uh, we'll have Jill in our prayers and we'll thank her for attending as long as she does attend. And if she goes to a church, that's great, you know, one way or another. But uh, uh, just thought that I'd uh, share that with you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's see here. Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for uh, the chance to meet here today. And we do know that Jim had a a last minute emergency and so Mm -hmm. he may not be here. But uh, we uh, thank you for the chance to meet together, to get into your word and to share it and to uh, uh, hopefully see just wonderful things come out of it. It sure is a blessing to be a part of your body and to be able to uh, uh, just understand the enormity of what you have done for us. And Lord, of course, there are a million other people out there with many problems and many trials and sufferings, and we want to lift each one of them up individually who you know, collectively that you know individually. And um, also, Lord, uh, we just we just give you the praise you're due. You are certainly worthy of it, morning, noon, and night, and throughout the day. We thank you, and we love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are in Romans, and we never got into Romans 1. Um, no, we just did uh, some patterns, and uh, um, I stopped with the patterns of, uh, from my notes, the patterns of, you know, Peter in uh, Romans 1, I'm sorry, Acts 1, uh, uh, 1 through 12, and then Paul from 13 to 28, and then I talked about, because people wanted to review what I talked about the week before very quickly, we reviewed the structure of the Bible based on the blessing of uh, Noah, and how all of that points to Romans, because uh, Acts, you know, it, it's like this this key, that it, it's going from the Old Testament into the New, and it's showing the transition from Jew to Gentile, from Jerusalem to Rome, etc. And understanding that helps you to get your perspective on where you are now that you're in the book of Romans. And as I said, one of you will remember this, um, uh, Romans is, it, it's given a kind of a fun name by many Christians. It's the Constitution, Constitution of Christianity. That's right. And so it makes all the sense in the world. Hello, how are you? Good. It makes all the sense in the world that it would be um, uh, the first book to be introduced. And, uh, you know, the patterns which go through Paul's letters are really exquisite. And I won't go through them today, but from Acts through Paul's letters and the breakdown of how they fit into the Bible is really amazing. But we won't get into that. I'm going to get back to my notes now. And uh, we will, uh, let me see, um, Romans 1. Okay, this is Romans 1, 1, which I'll read again. And uh, let's see here, Romans, sorry about that. Romans 1, verse 1. Uh, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Okay, and um, as I said, I talked about patterns and parallels last week. So along with these many parallels, Paul will state in his writings four times that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Twice he will state that Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Now, I did read this last week, but I'm just starting with the notes again from this point. Um, This then is the significance of these parallels that we looked at. Okay, they are highlighting for our understanding of the immense importance of Paul's 13 epistles. Now, if you are like me, you don't have to agree with this. Hebrews is not signed. There's no author to Hebrews. It's one of, you know, these rare things that the book is not written 
uh, and that's probably for a reason, and so because it's written to the Hebrews, um, it would kind of obscure the fact that Paul is the author to it, and that would make it more conducive to Jews picking it up and reading it and saying, oh, well, this is written to me. If it said Paul, then it wouldn't uh, uh, have the same weight because the Jews would immediately dismiss it, but I do believe that Paul is the author of Hebrews. So actually 14 epistles, if that's true. There are many reasons why I say that. Uh, some of them are based on the number of words that Paul uses, particular words that only Paul uses, and then they're used again in Hebrews. And if you count the number of them, they come out like two beautiful patterns of like 21 times, which is a multiple of seven, or 14 times, which is a multiple of seven, etc. There's all these clues. And then there's also a clue that um, uh, Peter gives when he says, um, you know, Peter said that, Paul wrote to them. Well, who is Peter writing to? The Jews of the dispersion. Well, there's no letter of Paul writing to the Jews of the dispersion unless you include Hebrews. And so it is an indication that Paul was the author of the uh, book of Hebrews. Uh, and then he says, as he writes in all of his writings, including all of his writings, but there was no specific letter written by Paul to the Hebrews, and yet Peter says there was one. So I do believe that it's the Hebrews. Anyway, we'll go on. Uh, we'll get to that when we get to the book of Hebrews. But anyway, they are highlighted for our understanding the immense importance of Paul's 13 epistles, Romans to Philemon. He is the instructor of the church, which has been led by the sons of Japheth since the exile of Israel in AD 70. We talked about that last week. All of the reasons why you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You've got the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke written to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then you have the, the same pattern in the book of Acts, where you have the evangelism of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay? And uh, so you see it, it follows in order all the way through the Bible. You've got these beautiful patterns, which is confirming the word of God. It's confirming something that was written to or was spoken by Noah that doesn't seem to make any sense from 5,000 years ago. And all of a sudden, when you look at the structure of the Bible, it makes this beautiful sense. Okay, um, so to dismiss Paul in his writings, then, is to reject church doctrine. All right, if you watch Les Feldick, you know that uh, he agrees with that 100%. If, if you take Paul out of the equation, which almost all liberal churches do, you might as well not even bother going to church. You know, because Paul writes to the church about the church, and he writes things that are judgmental, right? He writes things that are, are say that we shouldn't do this. He says, you know, women are not to teach or have authority over a man. Well, they don't want to hear that in a liberal church, right? The things that Paul writes are sound, they're reasonable, and there's a reason for them. It's not that we hate women, it's that the Bible doesn't allow it. Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you get rid of Paul, then you can hide away from that. You can say, well, we can have ordained women. And what do you have when you have ordained women? No offense, ladies. You've got the world we live in right now. Churches that have completely apostatized from the Word of God because they will not admit that the Word of God says they're not to do this thing. And the churches invariably devolve into anarchy, chaos, and anything but the Word of God. And then even Jesus, they don't preach on Jesus' teaching. How many churches actually preach on everything that Jesus said? Because if they did, people would get all scared and they'd walk out. All they do is they stick with the Beatitudes, they stick with the, the passages that feel good feel at good. Christmas, they talk about the you know the nativity, but they don't get into Jesus' words of judgment. You know, they don't get into Jesus. They'll say, judge not lest ye be judged, but then they don't go to the next paragraph where Jesus says to make judgments, right? So, but Paul's, Paul's letters, Paul's letters are doctrine for the church. Now, I've said this in Prophecy Updates, and I don't know if I've said it in, in Bible study, but 
you cannot take Jesus' words, and I'm pretty sure I've said it in the Bible study, you can't take Jesus' words of Matthew 24 and apply them to the rapture. You can't apply them to anything of the end times for the church because they're not written in the end times of the church. They're written to the end times after the church. They're written to the Jewish people after the rapture of the church, unless you dismiss a rapture or you believe in a, you know, a mid or a post-tribulation rapture, then maybe you can fit Jesus' words in there. But he's not speaking to the Gentile-led church. He's speaking to the people of Israel under the law, which means that the last seven years of the tribulation period, which are all in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. So if you take out Paul, you've got no doctrine. Paul is the man. That'll take you right back to Acts chapter uh, 9, I think, where... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 not what's his name. Jesus said to what's his name. Ananias. Um, uh, you know, go. He is my messenger to carry my message. Blah, 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 blah. And he says, this is the man. Can't get rid of Paul or you don't have church doctrine. And unfortunately, that's what everybody does. Okay, charismatic churches. How do they get rid of Paul? They completely ignore his writings about tongues. They completely ignore his writings about... Oh, yeah. Um, uh, about any of the apostolic gifts. They just ignore them. And so they say these apply to us in this way when it has nothing to do with Paul, what Paul is saying. Nothing to do with it at all. Tongues are always, always in the Bible a known language. They're very well and very precisely laid out in 1 Corinthians 14. Very precisely. They're always a known language. They're um, uh, not to have more than how many tongues in any church service. Three, that's right, and there must be a interpreter. interpreter. If there's no interpreter, then shut up and sit down, right? And does any charismatic church follow that? No, you got 50 people in there all going, because they don't want to adhere to Paul. If you get away from Paul, you get away from sound doctrine. And if you take pieces of Paul, the same thing will happen. Do you need a uh, chloroseptic? Okay, you got one, okay. Um, okay, so... Uh, to dismiss Paul in his writings, then, is to reject church doctrine, because it is church doctrine. You can't get church doctrine from uh, Hebrews or James or Peter in the sense that it's written to the Gentile-led church. It's written for them, but not to them. Do you understand? Everything in the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us, so it has to be taken in context. It's written to the Hebrews. It's not written to the Gentile-led church. It's for our edification, our instruction, but not for our specific church age doctrine if everybody understands that i refer to hebrews probably more than any other book in the new testament but for context of what god is doing in the world and we go through hebrews a lot in the the uh, exodus sermons especially the ones right now with what's going on with the you know the building of the tabernacle and all that hebrews explains all of that but it doesn't mean that it's something that we apply in church doctrine during the gentile-led church age we refer to it okay I, I don't want to get too far away on that, but anyway, um, let's see here. Um, let's. Uh, th this has been increasingly the case, talking about getting rid of Paul in the past 150 years or so, as the church has become more liberal and turned from Paul in an attempt to be more tolerant and less firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've seen. Okay, we're going to start ordaining women. They got into that like in the 1880s, 1890s, and the church has just gone downhill since then. No offense to ladies, if they don't like hearing that, I can't help them. I didn't write the book. As I said, all I'm going to do is teach what the book says. You know, I, I don't know, I'm, I might have said it to you all, or I might have said it to Paul alone. I said that during a prophecy update a couple weeks ago. 
and I said that uh, the uh, a um, uh, elder is to be the husband of but one wife. That's right. Well, that means that it's to be a man because a man has a wife, unless you're under Barack Obama's America, right? Then you might have a wife that has a wife. But this one lady came back and she said one verse. She said that word pertains to men and that word doesn't pertain to what. In other words, she took the verse and just divided it in order to justify. She says, I'm a bishop of the Most High God. Oh. No, I didn't even respond to her. I'm not going to degrade the time that I have arguing with somebody that feels that way. If she's just going to take God's word and out of context and divide it into something so she can justify why she should be a bishop, all right. I, I'm not even going to argue with her. But she can do whatever she wants. She is the one. I say this to Tom once in a while on mission work, is that... Um, uh, I know this is a big diversion. I had to get into Romans, but it, it, it's it's one of those things that just kind of bothers me. Is you get these ladies that bring people to Christ, right? We're, you know the one I'm thinking of. She had a big ministry up in Tampa. She divorced her husband, and you know they split the ministry, and she's still out preaching, and he's probably who knows what he's doing, digging ditches, but because um, she was the one that brought all the people in. But can you imagine? She so she leads fifty-two thousand people to Christ, right? Suppose she does. Can you imagine Jesus there at the judgment and saying to her, you disobeyed my word, but I'm going to give you rewards anyway? Can you imagine the righteous God doing that? No rewards. No rewards. You disobeyed my word. It doesn't matter. The end does not justify the means. That's where we're in America today is the end justifies the means. We want to have a woman president. We want to have somebody that's, you know, whatever. So the end justifies the means, which it doesn't, but that's what I'm saying. That's where we're at mentally. But I cannot imagine Jesus saying to somebody, you did so much good that I'm going to overlook your ignoring my word. He is the word of God. He doesn't need us to run things for him. He needs us to be obedient to him. So that's just how I feel about that. Anyway, I know big diversion there, but Paul, that's why I'm saying why Paul is so important. Because you get Joyce Myers and you get Paula White and you get all these ladies out there and they preach all around through Paul until it pertains to them particularly and then they never mention it. They never bring those passages up because it's disobedience. If they are schooled in the Bible, then they're schooled in the whole Bible, and they know that they're being disobedient. No rewards. I have a okay. Question. Yes. It says that women are not supposed to teach men, but at other places it says we're all one in Christ. Okay. Jesus. I, we're all equal, and we're all. No, it doesn't say that. It, it never say says that. I mean, I know there's. It an never says that. It says there is now no Jew or Gentile. Uh, male or female, we are all one in Christ. Right. It doesn't say we're equal. Well, it says that we all carry the same Christ. salvation. We all are, they, okay. we are equal in salvation. But the very fact that he says there is now no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, implies that there is a difference. That was in today's devotional. Mm -hmm. That was in today's yeah. devotional. There is a difference. Males and females are males well, and females. Jews and Gentiles. That's right. But for me to say we're all one and now there's no distinction doesn't mean that there's no difference. And so when Paul says that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man, it means that there is a difference. There's no distinction in Christ. And that, that is one of the most abused verses along with judge not lest you be judged and a couple others. It's one of the most abused verses in scripture because they don't take what he is writing about. He's writing about our Salvation, our joint salvation, regardless of what your standing is. You're a male, you're a female, you're a slave, you're free. It doesn't matter. But the fact that he says there are slaves and free means that there were slaves and there were free, mm -hmm. right? So <laughs> he never says that we're all equal. 
that's what we try to get away from in the uh, the um, uh, Constitution as well. You know, all men are uh, uh, endowed by their Creator with. Never says that we're born equally. We're all born under our circumstances. We all have the same rights, but we don't all have the same beginnings. We okay, should say. Well, I didn't, yeah. By equality, I didn't mean that. Right, 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 right. Okay. But anyway. Charlie, a woman can still have a woman's ministry. I have no problem with that. He never even addresses it. He never. It's like we talked about dogs going to heaven one time. The Bible doesn't address it. The Bible is not about the redemption of dogs. Okay, I love my dogs very much. I hope that I'll see them again in heaven someday, but it has nothing to do. So when people ask me, are dogs going to heaven? Bible doesn't answer that. So why should I get into that theological discussion? That's the, best way to that's, it, it, the Bible is about the redemption of mankind. Sentient beings that have a free will to exercise towards or against their creator. That's what the Bible is about. That's a very good question, but it, the Bible doesn't address it, so why should I? Right? The Bible does address women nurturing other younger women. Oh, sure, that's right. The, the, let the older the, women teach. That's right. The provisions of their husbands. That is correct. And that, so, that, so that's so a, but as far as women's ministry and things like that, it doesn't say, you know, go out and establish a ministry. It doesn't say become an elder. It doesn't say become a, a bishop or anything. It never gives them titles. I know in Acts it says that this woman was a deaconess. That has to be taken in context, and we did that. But you're right. It does tell the older women to instruct the younger women and et cetera, but he doesn't get into the, the, the doctrine of that. He talks about, you know, in other words, um, uh, make sure that this woman follows along with the precepts that are laid down, et cetera. It doesn't say to go out and teach them about the rapture or teach about these things or that. It doesn't do that, okay? Because the Bible doesn't do it, it's not something that... God felt was important. What he feels is important is that elders are to be the husband of but one wife. They're not to be given to too much drinking, and they're not to be this, and they're not to be that. They are to be this, and they are to be that. So everything in context, but especially for the church age, Paul. Okay? Um, I do hope my puppies will be there. I love them. One of them I thought was going to punch her ticket last night. She was in really bad shape. But we gave her some uh, whatever she takes, and she was okay and then in the morning we gave her some more and she slept all day, but she is really on her way out. What is Hannah, the one that has been almost dead since the day we got her. But um, uh, let's see here. Okay, so um, as Acts ends in Rome, it is fitting that God established the order of the epistles beginning with Romans. All right, and we talked about that in that structure last week, how, how perfectly fitting it is that Romans is the first letter. That is not, as I said, we need to be careful of this. That is not an indication that the Catholic... I saw him at the uh, DMV today. Did he tell you that? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to divert, but what it just... What are you talking about? Um, I, I saw Bob there at the... Uh, wow. Robert at the, uh, at the DMV. I went down to pay my uh, registration. And it just I remembered that because... Um, anyway... Um, <laughs> what? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I didn't see Paul at the DMV. Um, anyway, uh, we don't want to make, as I was saying, the the mistake that the Catholic Church claimed is that because it went from Jerusalem to Rome that Rome is the seat of power for the Christian Church and we can defend that on several different levels but the easiest one is to say how many churches uh, did Jesus speak to in the book of Revelation seven okay has nothing to do with the Vatican it has nothing to do with the RCC being the mother church nothing at all but there are there are a million other things that we could talk about you know Jesus proclamation that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church nothing to do with the Catholic Church or Peter being the Pope. It, as a matter of fact, it has nothing to do with Peter. We don't He's, even know if he ever went to 
It, well, he he went to Rome, but he that's that's where he was crucified upside down. Oh, okay. Yes, that's what the the the, know, the Bible doesn't say that. But the, yeah, where it said that, so no, yeah, the, uh, they they have uh, writings about what happened to the apostles, mm -hmm. and that's where he was supposedly crucified upside down. So Rome crucified him. I mean, if they want to claim that title, let them. But in fact, um, the Bible uh, talks about the church that deceives in the end times. You betcha. In a feminine tent, yeah. tense, and that can only be the Catholic. Church. It, it is the Catholic Church. There is no doubt no about, doubt about it. it. Yeah, there's there's just no doubt. And so you know these all of these things that the Catholics claim have nothing to do with it. So we'll go on from there. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, where was? Oh yeah. Okay. So. It begins uh, with Romans. This is, as I said, the Constitution of Christianity, and it gives wonderfully, wonderfully valuable insights into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it also gives important information concerning the times when Israel will again carry the spiritual banner of God's message. Remember we talked about that last week. Shem, uh, uh, Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem, and we showed how Shem Japheth, Shem. And we saw that in the Gospels. We saw it again in the letters of Paul. And then we saw a little snapshot of it in the book of Revelation as well. Japheth is enclosed in the tents of Shem. All right. And so uh, uh, Paul speaks about that in some detail in Romans 9 through 11. How Israel will again be the center of God's focus. You know, the funny thing is, and that's why I say, well, I'll say what I'm going to say in a second. But the funny thing is that uh, reformed theologians and replacement theologians will take Paul's words of Romans 9 through 11 and they will read it and analyze it completely differently than a dispensationalist would. Completely differently. We will say, see, God is saying that when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, then Israel will again. And they say, no, that doesn't mean that. And they take the exact same passages and they pull them into the context that they believe is correct. And they really believe that. They really believe that the church has replaced Israel. And so we have these, these differences in theology. And that's why I say, unless you go back to the Old Testament, you'll never understand what's going on in the New. And that's why with the rapture, when I gave that rapture sermon a few weeks ago, you get people that say if they're mid-trib or if they're pre-trib or if they're post-trib, they look at the same six verses, right? And they say see how this fits in and they're using the same and yet they come to a completely different conclusion why is that it's because they're coming at it with a presupposition i believe that this says and because i believe what this says already in advance then that is how they're going to interpret those verses okay and so you're all you're going to do is argue yourself into a corner with a pre-trib person or a post-trib person because they're just looking at it from a completely different perspective. And then if they add in the words of Jesus from Matthew 24, they're taking verses out of context, and so you've got a completely convoluted theology on, on uh, eschatology or the study of end times. What you have to do is go back to the Old Testament where God has shown us these things in advance, in types and in shadows. Everything in redemptive history is in type and shadow. If you want to see the dispensations of time, go and read the life of Jacob. The entire set of dispensations is revealed in the life of Jacob. You'll see the return of the church in the life of Joseph and how they came back. They bowed down to their, their uh, brother, a type of Christ. It's the Jews coming back and bowing down to Christ, which is you know explained in detail in the book of Zechariah. All of those things from the Old Testament are given for a reason. He didn't have to tell us that Leah had weak eyes. Does anybody care that she had weak eyes? 
Is that something that when you read it, you say, oh, that, that was important information. You say, why did God say that? There's a reason why. It's because Leah is a picture of the law. The law is weak. The weakness and the unprofitableness of the law. And what happened? Rachel came in. She's beautiful. She's the desire of Jacob, the grace of Christ replacing the law, right? And you have the marriage week of Rachel, I'm sorry, Leah, and then you have the marriage week of Rachel. It, it's a picture of what God is doing in redemptive history. All of those things, you think, why did God tell us this? Why did she put on her veil before she saw Isaac? All of those things point to something else. When it, uh, what's her name? Sarah was buried. Chapter 23 of Genesis talks about the sons of Heth. I think they're man mentioned eight times. The sons of Heth, the sons of Heth. Why does he keep saying that? You know who he's talking to. Because every time he mentions them, he is trying to get you to get something down. Why does it specifically pull out one guy by name, Ephron, the Hittite, who is a son of Heth? They call him, instead of a son of Heth, they call him the Hittite. Why Ephron? What does Ephron mean? Son of the dust, right? It's a picture of Adam. All of these things are showing us what's coming in redemptive history. If you don't look there, then you're going to have these problems. And that's why I say... I, I'm trying not to be too hard on replacement theologians by saying this. That's why I'm going into all this detail. Is because unless you know what God is doing in the old, picturing what's coming in the new, of course replacement theologians are going to look and they're going to say, Israel is out. And I will go through that one of these days. We've done it in the book of Acts twice. We'll do it again in the book of Romans. Why do they believe that the um, uh, church has replaced Israel? And when you get to Romans 9-11, why do you disagree with me? Because you have a presupposition about this matter. Go to the old, and that will tell you what's going on. Is Elaine okay today? She's in New York. Oh, she's in New York. You, you told me that. That's right. Okay. Yeah. That's, oh, good. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. Um, okay. So, um, chapters 9 through 11. To misunderstand Paul's words in chapters 9 through 11 leads to a spiritualization of much of the Old Testament, which is what I was just referring to. We'll talk about that sometime. How did that happen? How did they come to the conclusion that the church has replaced Israel? Maybe we'll do that today. It's, we're already 30 minutes into the class, and it'll probably take full 30 minutes to do it. But we've got to get through verse 1 at least. Um, um, sorry about that. Um, okay, these unfulfilled Old Testament passages, because there are all kinds of unfulfilled Old Testament passages, aren't there? Things that have never been fulfilled will be realized in Israel of the future, not in the church. But they couldn't understand that. They couldn't, and so, I, 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 you know, people that say, oh, they're apostate, they're not true Christians, and, well, why do they believe what they believe? And it has nothing to do, listen, if you've called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are saved. That's all there is to it. I don't care if you believe in a mid-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture. I have people all the time post these comments on the uh, YouTube videos, and they say, oh, that's, that's a heresy. It has nothing to do with heresy. Heresy is something that will keep you from being saved or another person from being saved. Believing in a mid-trib rapture is just bad doctrine. That's all it is. Or if they believe in mid-trib and they think that I'm a pre-trib, then maybe I'm the bad doctrine, right? But it has nothing to do with losing your salvation or teaching some apostate teaching. But people take these little boxes that they're in. I'm a prophecy expert, and you don't agree with what I do, and so you're an apostate. There's nothing to do with it. There's nothing to do with it. It comes down to doctrine. The things that are heretical are denying the deity of Jesus Christ. That's one of them right there. Mm -hmm. Denying the Trinity, the triune God. Denying the virgin birth of Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. Now, let me ask you, because I'm talking about that, and I want you to think this through logically. Okay? I don't want to leave something hanging. 
If somebody has never heard of the virgin birth, can they be saved? Of course. All the years that Jesus Christ is the God-man and he gave his life for the sins of the world and he died for you too. I want what he's giving. I receive Jesus as my savior. Is that guy saved or not? There you go. He's never even heard of the virgin birth. It is irrelevant to that person who Mary is. He may never know who Mary is in his whole life. He may never have a Bible in his hand. But if you tell somebody that Jesus Christ was born of a woman and born of the uh, archangel Gabriel, or actually we'll say Michael. No, they say that Jesus is Michael. I'm trying to think of what the, the Job's witnesses do. Oh, yeah, he's born of an active force, not the third member of the... It's been Yeah, okay, he's born of an active force, not God, right? Because they have to deny this. That will lead the next person to never being saved. Now the virgin birth becomes an issue of heresy. Not if you don't know of it, but if you know of it wrong, that will keep that person from being saved because he doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man. So you see the difference between not knowing something and being saved and knowing something and not being saved. Does everybody understand that? Okay? You may not know all of the tenets that can keep you from being saved, which is, you know, that as I said, the inspiration of Scripture. If I don't believe that the Bible is inspired and I teach somebody that this word here is not the inspired word of God, the chances are that they will never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because the inspiration of Scripture teaching that it is not inspired is a heresy. It will lead somebody to not becoming saved. But if somebody doesn't know that there's a Bible and you just go out to the, the, the boondocks and you say, I want to tell you about this guy that came and died for your sins and they believe, did they have the New Testament or any of Scripture when Paul went over to uh, the Galatians? No. He went and he told them about Jesus and they believed. And he says, when you believed, you received the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. They are saved. But if Paul was to have somebody come along and teach them new doctrine that said, okay, what Paul told you was wrong and that the, the text that he is teaching on is not true, the next people will never be saved. I'm sorry, the people that Paul told and they believe, they are saved and they are not going to lose that. But the next generation will never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Inspiration of scripture, the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus Christ, the all-sufficient atonement of Christ. If you don't teach that, that person will never be saved. But they don't need to know that in order to be saved. Everybody understands now, there's a difference between the two. You can not know something and be saved, but you can have complete knowledge of something and not be saved because of that complete knowledge, which is erroneous. I'm talking about an erroneous complete knowledge of a matter, okay? That's why the letters of Paul in particular are so very important to us, is because understanding what is and what is not heresy is very important. Whereas what is and isn't doctrine, oh, he doesn't believe in a mid-trade rapture and so he's not going to heaven. That's so utterly ridiculous that it, it, it just makes my head swim. Yes. Isn't that why the early church developed like the Apostles' Creed? or? Yes, they had early creeds to help solidify doctrine. What is the oldest creed in Christianity? It's right in the Bible. We're going to get to it in the book of Romans. Jesus is Lord. That's it. That's the oldest creed. In, that's the oldest creed in Christianity. Jesus is Lord. In other, and who is Lord? Jehovah of the Old Testament. 
Yahweh, whatever you want to call him, whatever, you know, because we don't know his name. Some people say Yahweh, some people say Jehovah. I changed the J to a Y and say Jehovah because, you know, I grew up calling him Jehovah, right? I mean, that's what the Bible, you know, but the J isn't, it, it, it's, it's a Y. Anyway, that's why I say Jehovah and other people say Yahweh and some people say Yahoo, you know, whatever. Not something to argue over because we don't really know the exact translation. And there's about six different possibilities of how to translate yod Hey vav Hey. Anyway, having said that, um, uh, Jesus is Lord. That is it. That is the oldest uh, uh, creed in, in Christianity. It's because it's saying, I accept that he is the fulfillment of Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament. He is God incarnate. He is the manifestation of I am in human flesh. Okay? You teach that wrong, they'll never be saved. That's a heresy. Yes? Another quickie. When I was growing up, the Methodist church used to, everybody would recite the Apostles' Creed yes. at the beginning of every service. Now, we heard that in the So we were going over church the too. main tenets of our faith. Yeah, and that's, but you know what? That is, that goes to what we talked about in the sermon last week, and I'll tell you the problem with that. Okay. It's just like the Jews... They have all of the knowledge of the Feasts of Israel, right? They go to, you know, I my neighbor, he was in a, a band. He actually played in a Pentecostal band. He didn't know Jesus from Adam. That doesn't mean you're yeah. born again. No, that's right. you say it, but, you know, it's Let me answer, though. He played in a Pentecostal band. He played at bars every night. He was a musician. He just played wherever he'd get hired, okay? So, but he, every time they had a feast day, would have a big party. They had the Passover feast. And, oh, come on over, we'll have a party, right? And then they'd, he and his father would get together and they'd read the Hebrew at, um, uh, you know, maybe Yom Teruah or Yom Kippur. They'd all have these, these big parties, right? And they, they knew the doctrine of the Old Testament, but they didn't know what it pointed to, okay? Catholics, they know the doctrine. Jim will tell you this. Most Catholics know the, the, the doctrines. I'm talking about the most important tenets of the Bible. They know the Trinity. They know the virgin birth. They know, they know the virgin birth. I mean, they know these core doctrines, but the problem is what? Right? They've never had the encounter. That's right. And the Methodist Church, same thing. That's right. They would give you the Apostles' Creed. We Over at St. Boniface growing up, they would have you go through all these creeds, the Nicene Creed. But it's a help. <laughs> it is a help, but that's what I'm saying. Now, let, me fin let me finish the thought. They, they, the Jews have the Old Testament. They have the doctrine of the Old Testament. The Catholics have the doctrine of the New Testament. The Episcopals have all of the doctrine, but they don't have the heart. And that's why when somebody that has that, you know, you, for example, the Methodist Church, you have this core knowledge, and then you come to Christ, you become what? A great, great Christian. Because most people that come to Christ don't have that. What they have is nothing, and so they're on fire for the Lord, but they don't have any doctrine. You see? But what I said in the sermon on Sunday is that now what most churches do is they get you in the church, and they say, do good works, be a good person, and they never tell you about, and that's why we're going through, right? Uh, last week was the consecration of Aaron and his sons, part two, and I talked about the slaying of the bull in part one, and then the slaying of the first ram in part two. And then the slaying of the third ram after that in part two. Why the bull? Why this ram? And why that ram? And each of those pictures our process of salvation. The bull is for the sins. The first ram is to say, I'm dedicating myself to the Lord. And the third ram is saying, the Lord has accepted me. It, it, you see, in other words, it's following a pattern. 
The Old Testament is revealing what Christ would do in us. And if you take the third bull, I'm sorry, the third ram, you got the bull in the first and the second ram, the third animal, which is the second ram, and you have people come into church and say, you all do what the second ram symbolizes. What good does it do? Go do good work. They haven't gone through the atonement, and therefore there's nobody saved in that church. They're out doing good stuff. I got a friend over in the, the church um, on the East Coast. I don't even want to say what denomination because, you know, that's all they do is good stuff. It's a Methodist, United Methodist Church church, and that's all they do is good stuff all the time. And they don't follow the Bible. They've got a female pastor. I'm sure they don't give the gospel every single week, and I would bet that 99% of the people in that church will never come to know Jesus Christ. You know, when I was little, my grandparents took me to a Methodist church. I never heard ever, ever. about being saved. That's right. You've got to saved. go to the bull first. Yeah, and they never talked about being Right. But you see what I'm saying? Is that's the problem with having the head knowledge without the heart knowledge. But there's also a problem with having the heart knowledge without the head knowledge. And how many churches get people saved by the billions, especially like charismatic churches? Come on in. Let me tell you, Jesus died for you. And then they never get into doctrine. And so they are incomplete in their theology. And so the rest of their life, they're just, hate to say it, but they're rolling around in floors making fools of themselves. It's because they don't get into doctrine. So you got to have the right order. Bull, ram, ram. And then after that, you get into the sprinkling, which we'll get into, uh, well, anyway, we'll get into that in the next few sermons. we got great stuff in these sermons because it's showing us what Jesus did for us and how we fit into Jesus. I can't wait till we get to the altar of incense. Oh, talk about pictures of Christ all day long, and it's only a couple, couple verses long. A Bible study is where you get the doctrine. But if you've got a guy that never went to get the proper doctrine, then your Bible study is going to be one of these. Anyway, I Everything in order. But you see how reciting the Nicene Creed or you, the Apostles' Creed, didn't help you with anything. It gave you knowledge, but it didn't give you heart. If you have the heart and the knowledge, and that's why I say, Jews that come to Jesus make the best Christians. Why? Because they've got all the Old Testament. They know every. I see. Their eyes suddenly open up and they say, oh, look at my hair standing up. I, I mean, literally, it's, look at it. They understand something that, just blows them away and they are on fire for the Lord. A Catholic that has come to Jesus Christ, like Brian, who was here a little while ago, or Jim, they grew up in a Catholic church and all of a sudden they do the same thing. I see, and they put it down here and they are on fire and they're these great students of the Lord. Whereas most of us start in the opposite direction. We start with, come on in, do good stuff, and then you meet the Lord and you don't have any sound doctrine. So, okay, got that out of the way. Um, uh, uh, passages will be, okay. Uh, the book of Romans has and this is New King James Version, 433 verses. When we are finished, hopefully we will have a much fuller understanding of the glory of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, although this is a long introduction, and obviously we've been on it for uh, two hours now, um, uh, two hours and 15 minutes, um, which could go on much longer, in order to get into verse 1, we have to move on. So we're going to get into verse 1, which I just read you one more time. Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God. All right? Um, in verse 1, Paul introduces himself using four terms. Bondservant. Anybody know my email address? Yes. A bondservant of Christ at. Okay? And then I won't say it. And, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Everybody that's watching can get me through the at gmail.com, right? I'm a bondservant of Christ. I had somebody one time email me and say, you shouldn't say that. Why? Yeah. I said, that's what we are. Either you're a servant of Christ or you're a servant of the devil. And it's... 
I don't know. They just had something on their mind that they're like, that, that you shouldn't, you know, you're not a bond servant. I'm like, that's what the whole point of the Bible is. Nobody can serve two masters. You're either under this master or under that one. And I tell you what, I'd rather be a bond servant of Christ than a bond servant of the devil, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, and actually a bond servant is an unpaid servant, which means a slave. 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 That's right. right. So some of my uh, uh, email addresses on my website and stuff are slave of Christ, but that's usually taken. And bond servant of Christ is usually taken, but a bond servant of Christ wasn't, so that's why I have that. But they all mean the same thing. It's an unpaid servant. I am not worthy of my wages. I'm just simply here to do my job. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Anyway, he's a bond servant, called, apostle, and separated. Four terms. Two of these terms describe his state before the Lord, which is bond servant and apostle. The other two are how that state came about. He was called and he was separated. Okay. Paul's original name was? Shaul, that's right. Okay, Shaul, which is the same as the first king of Israel. Yes. I think it was Hodge that I read after this week that he says that his daddy, who was Jewish, named him both because they lived up in Tarsus. Tarsus. That he, he gave him Paul when he played with the Greeks. That could be. And he named and Saul, Saul when he played with the Jewish. With the Jewish. But <laughs> most people said that was a separation. Well, you know. Like it, Joseph was was renamed, Daniel was renamed. That's right. These rumors renamed them. We don't know, and it could be either. A lot of Jews back then, and we see this even in the writings of Acts, a lot of Jews had two names, and they call them this in front of the Jews, and they call them this in front of the Gentiles. And so it could be that, or it could be that he actually changed his name because Shaul means one thing, Paul means something entirely different. They're not the same name. In other words, Paul means what? Small. Small, little, okay? I think it was a change in name. That's personal. I, I can't. God changed it. What? I thought God changed it. No, it, 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 it's it just suddenly Luke just suddenly calls him Paul all of a sudden, and it never goes back to Saul Chapter again. 13. Chapter thirteen. Uh, no, I got the uh, Hebrew. It said uh, asked for or demanded was was Saul. But it's much Paul deeper than that. Hebrew. It's much deeper than that, and yes. the reason why is because Shaul is actually the same letters as Sheol, the pit. Okay, it's a much fuller word. And because you brought that up, if you send me an email and remind me, I will include that because we should know that. And I may have it in my act study, but I, I'm not going to go get it. And it'd take me all night to find it. But if you remind me by email, I will. We'll talk about Saul and Paul next week as to what Saul. Saul is a very, very deep meaning word. It can have a surface meaning, but like everything in the the Old Testament. It's based on roots, which are based sometimes on other roots, and you've got to go back to find out what was the intent of this. But to change his name to Paul, which means small, actually, believe it or not, he is prefigured back at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because you have the pit, the, the fire and brimstone, but you also have Zoar, the little town. Isn't it a little one, right? He's actually there, and he's actually, his writings are prefigured in the peeled rods in the... Uh, the um, watering trough of Jacob. That's right. Paul's letters are there. I'm telling you, Paul is so important in New Testament theology that God prefigured him in the Old Testament so that we would not miss what he's going to do. And when the Jews' eyes are open to that someday, they're going to say, oh, we better pay attention to what this guy wrote. But they're not there yet except individually. So anyway. Hodge said because he was probably named after Saul, the first king. Yes. Because Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin, the first. That's right, and that that could be. 
That could be. He was, it, because he says, I'm a, a, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and they're proud of that lineage, but they're also proud of being in Benjamin for other reasons. They stuck with David when uh, uh, you know the rest of Israel rebelled. They were the smallest tribe. You know, they were almost wiped out, got down to 600 men. 400 of them finally got wives, 200 didn't, so they had to go and get the 200 wives from that. You know That's in the, the book of uh, 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 Judges. But yeah, they had to kidnap 200 wives. So there's a point of pride in being from Benjamin for several reasons from the Old Testament. And yet he says, all that means nothing to me. So he gave up on that, those points of pride, understanding that Christ is so much richer than, than you know, a title and a position and a tribe. And anyway, um, uh, okay, so Paul's original name was Saul. However, in the book of Acts, we saw the transition of his name from Saul to Paul. Paul means small. And oh, I, there it is right there. He's actually prefigured all the way back in the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I forgot that I had typed this because this was a long time ago. I typed it. When Lot fled to a town called Soar. There you go. Uh, God selected Paul and placed hints of him in Genesis to show us what he would do through this wonderful, hearty soul. There you go. I, I completely forgot that I typed that, so I repeated myself. Okay. As a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he is a slave belonging to him entirely, and he merits no payment for his duties. And remember, he says he, he wouldn't take uh, pay for his duties, and he didn't take it from other churches, but he literally lived out his life as a bondservant. He worked with his hands. He paid his own way. He just he, he had this need to keep himself separate from anything that would tie him in with being in bondage to another person. I am in bondage to Christ, and that's where my, my allegiance stands. Anyway, uh, yeah. He uh, is denying uh, that he was a servant of man, Rejecting all human authority. You got to say that louder. You got. He was denied that he was a servant of man, rejecting all human authority as it's regarded in matters of faith and duty, and yet now professing to be the most abs under absolute subjection uh, and reason to the authority of Jesus Christ. Absolutely, servant, bond servant. He, he rejected the old way. And he's accepted and, the new. And I'm a servant here now. And that should be every one of our attitude. Every one of our attitude here should be, I am a servant or a slave of Christ. Mm -hmm. I, 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 that should be our attitude. And if we keep that, if we keep that in our mind, that'll help keep us in a proper walk every single day. It's hard to do, though, because, you know, people, they give you a pat on the back for this, or they, they give you a pat on the back for that, and you think, I'm pretty great, when in fact, we're not. We are who we are because Christ put us in this position in time and in place and in history for his purposes. It all leads back to him. Did you have a hand up? I did. Um, my Bible does say that bondservants can't resign and they mm -hmm. cannot work for any other employer. That's right. They can't resign. They can't work for any other employer. They are servants of that person. It, 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 they're slaves. That's exactly what it is. It's just when we say a bondservant, it means that I'm a servant. I'm bonded. Okay, and so it, that's what it means. But it's a slave. That that's exactly what a bond servant is. So there were sixty million slaves in the Roman Empire. Oh, I I don't doubt that. And, and you know when he says I'm a bond slave, he's you know I'm in your company or you're in my company. Or that's whatever. that's exactly you know, he right. Exalt himself. No, he and he does that in the book of Philemon as well. He talks about the the slave Philemon, and he says now you can treat him as a brother. You know, it, but we're all in the same position. We're, we're all in the same position. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, uh, oh, as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, he is a slave belonging to him entirely, has no merits of payment for his duties. I read that. His calling by the Lord was as an apostle. Apostle means a sent one, a chosen messenger. 
I got bad news for people that put Apostle this and that on their uh, Facebook page. They're not. The <laughs> apostolic, yeah, you get it all the time. People call themselves the Apostle this or Pastor this. You know, titles go nowhere with me. If somebody addresses me as one, that's fine. I don't like it. I usually correct them. Please don't call me Pastor. Please don't call me that. I don't mind the title Preacher. As a matter of fact, the guy at 7-Eleven, when I walk in, he'll say, Hey, Preacher, and I like that because that's what I am. I preach. But pastor and reverend and all, it just well i know and that's why i say if you say that that's fine but it, it, to me it doesn't it, it, it doesn't add anything to who i am if you just call me charlie i'm going to be i'm not going to be one of these guys well i'm a pastor right and when somebody puts yeah. bishop or apostle all that is is just to me it's it's like yeah it, look at me why do that why do that anyway um but that there are no apostles there are bishops today there are no apostles, okay? The apostolic era ended when the word amen was put on the book of Revelation. It's done. Those people were chosen by God. They saw him directly. The qualifications for an apostle are in uh, the Bible. And once they were met, they're done. There, there are no more apostles, okay? Uh, but if people disagree, that's fine. They can use whatever title they want. They can be as exalted in their own eyes as they want. But to me, I, I, I just don't have time for that. So, um, and finally he was... Damascus Road appearances. No, no more Damascus Road appearances. I'm sorry, it doesn't. You know, I had a guy email me today. You know what he said? He said that he is. Um, uh, basically, I wish I had the email in front of me. He said he's Jesus. He, he claimed to be the messenger of the covenant. That's me. I'm 67 years old. I live in Canada. I didn't even respond. I'm just like I sent on to a friend and said, look at you know. I get these things from time to time. People that like, I'm God incarnate, and they just. Fruit Loops. I mean, gosh. Anyway, um, uh, okay, so um, where was I? Finally, he said he was separated to the gospel of God. He was consecrated to be a herald of this message, and as the book of Acts and his personal writings reveal, he conducted his duties in a manner which brought great honor to his Lord. He performed his duties well. Okay, we can go into verse 2, unless you have anything else on verse 1. Yeah, yes, he does. I got a good save here. Okay. <laughs> Make sure you read it loud enough because they. Okay. Uh, he had a direct call and a, you know, as a slave or intelligentsia or however you want to say the most known thing. Uh, the divine truth is, is a stream which a child may wade in and an elephant can swim in. That's right. It is, it is for everybody. It's for everybody. And that's why we call it the bookshelf sometimes. Little child can walk up to a bookshelf and he can find the gospel on the very bottom shelf. And then you get somebody that's fully grown and has been studying and he's even got a ladder because he's going up to the highest shelves to reach out the, the theological textbooks and there's still something in the Bible for there. So the child can wade into the stream and the elephant can wallow in it. But absolutely right. McGee used to say, put the cookie jar down where the kids yeah. can get it. <laughs> put the cookie, yeah, that's right. And we don't have any little children in the uh, church, so I don't uh, have to do too much cookie jar. Second, but, uh, second childhood qualified? Yes, second childhood does qualify. Um, okay, so verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay? Paul builds on verse 1 in this verse. So I'll read them both together. Paul, bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before, the gospel of God, which he promised before, through his holy scriptures, um, th through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Okay, so he's saying that you have the Old Testament made these promises through the prophets. Holy scriptures is speaking only of the Old Testament. There was no New Testament at the time. 
He's saying that God has made this and revealed it in Christ through these people. Um, building on verse 1, the words which he promised before speaking of the gospel of God and is therefore relating back to Paul's statement as a bondservant of Christ and his calling as an apostle. We have to remember as we read the New Testament that there was no New Testament until it was written. Therefore, the promise came from the Old Testament. That which was given before is what Paul is speaking of, and it came through his prophets. Nowhere in the Bible will we find this thought contradicted, and many times it will be supported. Two important verses to understand divine inspiration are 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.20 and 21. So somebody go to 2 Peter 1, and I'll go to uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. And if you read, read loud. 2 Timothy 3. And I could quote this, but I don't want to blow it, so... Uh, because it is so uh, important. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, um, 3 verse 16 says, all scripture, where is that? 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It is given by God, it's inspired of God, okay, that the man of God may be complete through thoroughly equipped for every good work, okay? Doctrine of inspiration. And then 2 Peter 1.20, who's got that? 20 and 21. But know this first, that all... Read louder. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. It's like a sail, and the wind is pushing it. That's the idea you get when you read that, uh, that verse from Peter. It's like they were moved along as if in a boat and the sail is being pushed by God. And yet the men are the ones that are writing it. Just as we talked about, I think we probably talked about inspiration in this class before, but just real quickly is, uh, I, I, I think I have, I'm pretty sure I have, real quickly is that a person, his unique style is in the writing, and yet God's unique style is in the writing. Okay, and I know it was in a prophecy update a couple weeks ago that I said this, is that if you have a person that writes music, say Brahms, you'll always know that it's Brahms music. But it doesn't matter if a, a person on a rock guitar plays it or if a person with an old, uh, one of those, uh, not piano things, but um, what do you call it? Dun, 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 uh, old spooky movies used to have it. Harpsichord. You know, they, you could play Brahms on that. And you'll know that it's Brahms that wrote it. You say, that's a Brahms tune. But at the same time, if you have Eddie Van Halen playing the guitar, you'll always know it's Eddie Van Halen, even if he's playing his own music or if he's playing somebody else's music. So you get inspiration between the two. You get Jeremiah's unique style. You get God's unique style, and yet they both come through perfectly. You know that God is behind the writing of this, and yet you know that Jeremiah is the one that is playing it out with his own words and in his own voice. And so there's a uniting of the divine with the human in order for us to get the word of God. God didn't leave Jeremiah out of the picture. He put him in the picture, but he used his own writing in that. And so there's a unified message all the way through the Bible, even though 40 different men participated in the writing of the Bible. One writer behind it, 40 writers evident in it. Amazing. It's simply amazing. Anyway, um, okay, so uh, the Bible was received in its entirety by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is therefore God's word to mankind, and thus there can be no other truly holy books. And I try to always highlight that when somebody says the Holy Quran. You hear somebody say that? I'm sorry. The Quran is not holy. By definition, it cannot be holy. If this is the word of God, 
it is holy. It is set apart. It is consecrated. It is God's word. The Bhagavad Gita cannot be holy. It may be a writing of a religious text, but it is not holy. It's not set apart in the way that this is. They can say it's our holy scriptures, but that's because it's set apart for them. But it is not holy in the sense that it is related to the true God. It is unholy. It is profane. I don't care what document. The Book of Mormon is unholy. I don't care. They can say it's holy if they want. That's our holy writing. It is unholy before God. There's one set of holy writings, and it is in my hand right here. Okay? And it's not King Jimmy only. All right? It just, I'm sorry. It's not. You know, that's one of those things that people uh, need to get over. I won't get into it. I just won't. Um, okay, so there can be no other truly holy books. Any other religious or philosophical texts may have value. Okay, the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas, I refer to them all the time. But they may have value, but they are not holy. Okay, um, uh, none are authoritative uh, when speaking of the things of God. They can analyze the thing of things of God. They can give logic from the things of God. They can, uh, you know, when I refer to uh, the 12 first principles in the first sermon that I did on Genesis, right? They're logical. They describe what happened, but they are not from God, and therefore they are not holy. They simply are our attempt to describe who God is and what he is doing in redemptive history. So we've got to be careful because quite often if you go to like a, a, a you know, a, especially an apologetics or a philosophical seminary, you know, which is, when I went up to SES, that's, that's what they teach is apologetics from the word of God and Christian philosophy. You can't mix the two and say that this is on the same authority as that. This defending the faith from this book is on a completely different level than the philosophy of what God is like, all right? And I have found, I've found this to be true. And so I, I really don't do it anymore, and I've told people this whenever they ask for the 12 first principles. I try to remember to tell them this, is that I want to know that. I want to be able to explain the nature of God to a person. And, you know, how can I know that the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong? And you can do that logically from the 12 first principles. Logically, why is the Quran which, the God that's revealed in the Quran, not the true God. And you can do that logically. But I have found that using a logical argument or a philosophical argument, which makes all the sense in the world, does not convert people to Christ. Mm -hmm. And I found that. There's a point where you have to say they need the simple gospel, they need to find out that they're sinners and that they need a savior, or if they know they're a sinner, then they need what? Grace. If somebody knows he's a sinner, they need grace. And that's why, you know, Ray Comfort, though I have a lot of disputes with him on his doctrine, he has the right approach. It's called the way of the master. Why? Because Jesus would say, listen, you, you know, the guy says, I've done these my whole life, right? I've fulfilled all the laws of Moses my whole life. And he says, well, then you have one more thing you need to do. And he added on another requirement. Give up all you have and come and follow me. And the guy went away sad because he was very rich and blah, blah, right? Okay? He said, if you think that you can do this, then let me show you something more you need to do. I'm going to add on an extra burden. But if they already know that they're a sinner, because he went away thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm okay before God, right? But if he already knows a sinner, remember the guy down there that's beating on his chest, and he says, God, don't, you know, I can't even raise my eyes to look at you and have mercy on me. That guy needs grace. The way of the master is that if they think they're self-righteous, give them the law. Give them an understanding that they're not even close to meeting the law, Right? But if they already understand that, which most of us here, I think, are, then all you need to do is just give them grace. And all of that logic and all that, of that philosophy 
will help people understand the nature of God, but it, it won't really change them as far as their heart condition. And that's why I got away from that very quickly, because I realized all you're doing is you're having a, a, an argument with somebody. It's like trying, here's a good example so you understand what I'm saying. If you give a logical argument about all of these fallacies, and they're just, it's all emotions, which is what liberals always do when they write in letter to the editor. It's always emotions, okay? If you tell them where they are wrong in their letter, well, that's, that's a fallacy and that's a fallacy and you didn't distribute that prop properly, do you think you're going to change their mind at all? No, because they're liberals. You'll never change their mind. They'll just get mad at you and commit another fallacy and leave. And that's the same thing with telling people about Christ. You need to give them this, this, okay? So I, I love to discuss the things of God. I love to read Thomas Aquinas. I love to understand the nature of what are angels, okay? We are temporal beings, right? You, 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 we're all what we would call um, uh, progressively actuating potential. That means I have potential and I'm actuating it. My beard is getting grayer, it's getting grayer, it's gray. And then my head is getting balder, and it's getting balder, and then it's bald. Everything has potential. God has no potential. There's no change in God ever. He is God. He's what we would call pure act. What is an angel? Is an angel pure act? He's a spirit. But what is he? Uh, that's he's a minister. But what is that? He's a created being. Okay. He's a created being. But he, she just said he's spirit. So is an angel pure act? No, because if he was, then he'd be God. There's no change in God, right? So we are progressively actuating potential. This is a created being, but it's not God. It's So what is it? It is what we would call fully actuated potential. That's right. In other words, he was created, and the moment he was created, everything that he would ever be is. There will never be change in that angel again. And they are also known as what is we would logically call ev eternal. In other words, they are eternal beings, and yet they had a beginning. So they are ev eternal. Beginning, no ending. Okay? A demon, Satan, they will never end. They are eternal. We are temporal beings, and that means we're going to die. When we come to Christ, guess what we become? Ev eternal beings. We are going to live forever, just like an angel, but we will always be in a temporal body. So we're not really on the same category when we would think of ev eternal. But you see how this is interesting. It's, it's edifying. It builds us up. We learn things. Oh, I never thought of that before. It's great stuff. It will never convert anybody to Jesus Christ. That's why don't get into philosophical arguments. Don't talk about the nature of angels and all the things that I used to think were very valuable for that. They're of the least value. What people need when we go down to the projects is to hear that they're in a pit and we, we can get them out of it. Right? That's what we do week after week. That's what we need to do. Okay. Um, one, two, did I finish? Oh, yeah. Um, one, three. And we got time. One, three. Um, Number two. He said that he, he, through the prophets, Luke 24, on the two on the road. Yes. He, Jesus said he expounded to them. The law and the prophets. The law the prophets and the Psalms. That's right. He, they, they had them all in there. So he, they all point. That's a good. That's a good point is because what does J Jesus say in John chapter 5? He says, 39. what? 39? Uh, I don't know. John chapter, you're I'm going to have to. You're, you're seeking me? And yes. It might be. It's John chapter 5, and uh, hang on a second here. That's a good point. Jesus said that all of the Old Testament pointed him on the road to Emmaus, which is why 
Um, David Limbaugh's most recent book, which came out a few months ago, what did he call it? He called it Christ in the Old Testament or something? Because he says, look, the entire Old Testament points to Christ. So um, anyway, um, he says in John chapter 5, he says, um, uh, he, you, search, he the you search the scriptures. Where is that? Um, 39. 39. Okay, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. These are which testify of me. Okay? So he says that the scriptures testify of him. And what does he say to the apostles? I think it's in John chapter 13. The Holy Spirit will testify of me. He will testify of me. So you've got the Old Testament, which is, we know it's written by the Spirit. Jesus said that to the people when he said, David, under the Spirit, said, Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Okay, so we know, and the Jews understood that the Old Testament was written by the Spirit of God. It wasn't written by an active force, Jehovah's Witness stuff. It was written by the Spirit of God, the, the God who is the Creator. And they know that. They didn't obviously process it properly to understand a, what do we call a, not a trinity, two would be a duality. No, a, a, anyway, but, you know, they didn't think of it that way. They just thought God is Spirit. And so God, the Holy Spirit, wrote the Scriptures, and they understood that. But then Jesus says that he will testify of me. And that means that the New Testament, he wasn't speaking to us. He was speaking to the apostles that would write the New Testament, the people that had the commission. He will testify of me. And so they would write words of Scripture which would testify of him. He's coming. He has come. This is what he will be like. This is what he has done. This is who he is. And so the Bible is pointing right to the person of Jesus Christ. Scripture, Old Testament, Scripture, New Testament is all divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. It testifies of him in the Old Testament. He testifies of him in the New Testament. Okay? So, good point. Good point. I wrote to Emmaus. Um, okay. Verse 1-3. Um, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Okay? How somebody can get to these verses right here, 3 and 4, and not see the deity of Jesus Christ? You have to wonder how somebody could be so corrupt is to come up with the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses and say that Jesus isn't the God-man. It's right there at the beginning of the first epistle of Paul. It's right there all the way through the, the Gospels, all the way through the Bible. It just shouts out that Jesus Christ is the God-man. And every picture that we've seen, the ark, the mercy seat, everything, you know, how did, how did God, Jehovah, I'm talking about Jehovah, God, because he's called, you know, God, how did he walk up to Abraham? How did that happen? It's Old Testament. Does God have a body? Does he have parts? Does he have feet and hands? Well, according to the Bible, no, but according to the Bible, yes. How did that happen? It was Jesus walking up there. All right? I do not believe in a pre-incarnate Christ. That's a logical contradiction. There's no such thing in my theology of a pre-incarnate Christ. That is not a good way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. He is the eternal Christ. The same Christ that hung on the tree of Calvary is the guy that walked up to Abraham at the tents and revealed himself. And when Abraham sees him, when he is raised to eternal life, he is going to say, there you were. When Adam was in the garden, it says the Lord God walked in the cool of the evening. It was the eternal Christ that was there. He showed up in his own genealogy. He showed up in his own history. He showed up in his own everything to lead us directly to himself. How did he do it? You want to know a good example of how he did it? You ever see the movie Time After Time with uh, Christopher Reeves? Fell in love with that lady. An old lady walked up and handed him a, a, a watch, right? And she said, come back to me. 
And then he, he was like, and somehow he, he ended up going back in time into his own history, right? Well, if we can think of that in Hollywood, and we have all kinds of movies, Time Bandits and all of these, time, I love time travel movies. Star Trek does it. They go back in their own history. They actually enter in their, here's a good one to help you explain this. Uh, they went back to get whales. Does everybody know the, the Star Trek where they went back to get whales to repopulate the species? She does, okay? They went back in time. They needed to build a whale cage in the Romulan shuttle that they took back in time, okay? So they went, they had to, to barter with people to get it. And in order to get the plexiglass, which had to be six inches thick to hold all of this water plus the whales to make a tank to bring them into the future, they had to give away a secret from the future transparent aluminum. The same thing that you can make with six inches thick, I can make with one inch thick, right? And so what happened? Bones pulls Scotty off to the side and he said, you know, if we give him this, this uh, uh, diagram for transparent aluminum, we're, we could be changing the future. And what, is, what did Scotty say? I don't remember. He said, why? How do we know he didn't create the thing or invent the thing, right? In other words, they went back in their own past and they affected their future because they gave the inventor of transparent aluminum, which they use in the future, that. That's what Christ has done. If we can think of it, Christ thought of it a long time before us. He went back into his own history. How he did it, I don't know. But it is illogical to say that that's the pre-incarnate Christ because he's got flesh. He's walking there. Where did that come from? Well, that, that kind of diminishes to me the incarnation of Christ. If he came as a woman born of a man, and yet he was a man back there, it kind of diminishes it, unless it's the same man, okay? I, I, and I've got, I had one time, Ray Willett, oh, he challenged that, he said, oh, I've never heard that before. And so he gave me all these verses, and every one of them, we went through it, and he says, you know, and he was, you know, I, I believe it if you want, don't believe it if you want, it doesn't bother me, I don't, either way, I don't argue with these things, but I just think it's a logical contradiction to say that Jehovah showed up as a man and it wasn't Jesus. Okay. That's yes. what he tells us. I'm the visible image of the uh, invisible That's right. God. He is the invisible image of the invisible God. He is the uh, fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Okay? A if he did that before he did it, then he didn't do it. Not a, a visible image, but... The visible image. That's so you, right. So you're saying the all-existing Christ was able to reduce himself to a fertilized egg in the Virgin Mary. I have no idea. I have no idea how he did it. And began his life at a at a reduced point of absoluteness, then become born. Well, that's what he did. He was born in Mary's womb. Yeah. That so. It, so that would be one of the most wonderful diagrams of why you would stand against any abortion. Oh, 100 percent. 100%. And that's, Tom said almost what you said a while ago. He said, I just can't get my mind around the, the, the moment of conception of Christ. How could that's, he have done that? That's how he had to do it. He had to, being an all-eternal Christ, reduce himself to the most basic, basic structure of all. Which is the beginning of life in any of us. Right. And at that point, how do you, as any believer, not use that model to attack the whole subject of abortion. Of abortion, absolutely, I, I, 100%. And what, what does it say that John the Baptist did when Jesus showed up? He kicked in the womb. Absolutely, yeah, leapt in the womb, thank you. He didn't just kick, he leapt. In, in other words, all through the Bible, that precept holds true. And you know what, but once again, you can give 
anybody that wants to support abortion in a liberal church that argument and they'll completely walk away from it. I I have done it. I've done it so many times where you say, look, the Bible says this about Jeremiah. It says this about David. David described this in this psalm or Jesus here. And yet they they just walk away from it. You can show a liberal a full video of every proven video clip transgression of Hillary Clinton. And And they they, don't show until they say, I don't believe that. That's right. That's exactly right. You showed them. Yeah. The most absolute proof. That is exactly right. So, you know, that's what we were talking about earlier. When you have somebody come to you with a presupposition about a mid-trib rapture, you're not going to change their mind based on the the, the seven verses that you guys have been arguing over for the past ten years. It's not going to happen. That's why you have to go back to the old, and you have to show them what God has already said is coming. You're allowed to have a little fun with them. Oh, yeah, it is. It, it, It is fun to have... And you know what? It, but there's a point around. where there's there's a point where the fun becomes almost nauseous. Well, that's when you walk away. That's right. And you, you have, have to. Your fun but but the problem is walking away from still. a theological argument or a, a or a political argument almost never happens because everybody always wants to get the last word. Always, always. It's just it's. Oh, we got ten minutes left. We got a. Uh, let me see. Um, hang on. You're going um, to trouble in that diagram. You what? I it, we we can't do the diagram today, um, and I don't remember what it was I was going to talk about anyway. What was it? Um, uh, I was going to show. Oh, why replacement theology? Remind me, and we'll do that next week because eventually we've got to get into that, and then we'll get into it again uh, in Romans nine through eleven. Why did you know the church think that they had replaced Israel, and why was it logical? Because I try to look at it from both sides of the argument. Why was it a logical argument? that the church thought that they had replaced Israel. Because people say, oh, you know, obviously that's wrong. And, you know, they say it's it's a heresy to not support Israel, which no one's again, it's doctrine, excuse me. Why is it logical that the church thought it replaced Israel? And that's what we can talk about. And when you see that, you're going to say, oh, well, that makes sense. Now I understand why they believe that. Today, it makes no sense because God has evidently shown that he has brought Israel back. So what did they do? They make up things and they say that that's not the Israel that left 2,000 years ago. That's a different group of people and they've claimed that title and they say they're really not true Jews and they go because it is so evident that it, well that's right, it tears down their theology and people don't want to have, just like their their ideology liberal or conservative, you don't want to have that torn down. I believe this my whole life and so they will argue against it but if you look at it logically as we will and maybe we'll do it next week why did Israel uh, the church believed that it replaced Israel, you'll say, oh, at least now I understand why they believed what they believed. And there's no problem with it. And as I've said before, blindness in part has come upon the Jews until the fullness of the mm. Gentiles has come in, yes. right? What does that imply? It implies that we were blind too. Mm. Because if we weren't, we would have been out evangelizing the Jews. So there you go. Anyway, we'll go on with that later. Uh, we have 10 minutes, so I think we can get four done. Um, did I finish? No, I didn't finish three. Um, read that again. Uh, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Paul is establishing his baseline for the entire epistle. And he is doing it in a way that no one except a fool or someone who comes to the text with presuppositions could mix, miss. And as I said, presuppositions are a hindrance to proper theology. If you come to a Bible study and you say, well, I already believe that, then you're never going to say, I could have been wrong on this. And that's why every single sermon, when I sit down, I say, I just, I want a blank slate. I don't want to have any presuppositions. And there are times where I will get to a passage and I'll think, could I be wrong about this issue? And I'm talking about a New Testament doctrine issue. Because I'll look at something and I'll say, 
that seems to look like it's pointing you to something else. We'll just give you an example. That seems to point to a mid-trib rapture. That's not what, you know, I'm just saying that would be an example of it. And I have to sit down and I have to say, am I being honest about how I'm doing this? The reason why is because one, I'm responsible for what I teach out of God's word. And two, I'm never gonna teach on this passage again. And if I'm wrong here, if you're wrong on, I don't wanna get up and do this because yeah, you've got a, a, a tapestry. This is a tapestry. And it's all woven. You've seen how they do it on the looms, you know? And you've got a thread here and you start pulling on it. What happens? The whole thing is going to unravel, the entire thing, because these are going to start falling out one after another, right? The entire thing unravels. If you have bad doctrine somewhere in your theology and you let that go, because you always, when you're going through the Genesis and then the Exodus and then Leviticus and all these sermons, you always have to refer back. What did God do? He's progressively revealing himself to us in redemptive history. I have to go back and I have to say, what did I say here? And then you say, oh, that's right. But this seems to contradict that. Why is that? And I have to say to myself every week, I want to be honest with this. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I've got to admit that now. Because if not, that tapestry is going to start unwinding. Or if you write a novel and you miss a sentence here, if you're transcribing a novel and you miss a sentence here, all of a sudden it just starts diverting more and more and more. And you've got this gap that you'll never overcome. And so you have to be honest enough to say, I could be wrong on this issue, always, all right? Except on the fundamentals, inspiration of scripture, Jesus deity, etc. All of these other things, mid-trib, post-trib, I could be wrong. Because if not, you're an obstinate, hate to use the word, but you're an obstinate fool. You're saying, I'm right, and nothing is ever going to change my mind, which means you're probably wrong. Okay, don't do that. Be willing to say, I could be wrong, and therefore I'm going to pursue the truth, and only the truth. If not, anyway. Okay, um, he's establishing this. Um, uh, only a person with presuppositions could miss this. Paul is a herald of the gospel of God, of which all of the prophets and the scriptures testify. That's what he's just said. And which concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If all of scripture, which he just said, if all of scripture testifies to this one, then he is the focus of all that God is doing through redemptive history, and therefore he is Lord. Because the whole Old Testament is focusing on Jehovah. Jehovah, Jehovah. And if he says that all of Scripture is testified to this guy, then Jehovah must be him. Jesus is Lord. Oldest, uh, uh, what do we call it? Um, uh, creed. Creed, thank you, in the Bible. Jesus is Lord. It has to be. And that's why these Jehovah's Witnesses have... They fundamentally missed the first words of Paul, and from there, the tapestry just unravels. That's in Romans 10, 9, or 10. 10, 9, 8. and, yeah, that's right, 10, 9, and 10. Um, uh, okay, so, um, uh, where is it? Um, da, 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 da. Okay, if all scripture testifies this one, he's the focus of all that he is doing. He is the Lord. Jesus is Jehovah of the Old Testament revealed in his fullness in the New Testament. If, if you miss that in this verse, then everything else is going to fall apart. Everything is going to fall apart. Paul's explanation of Jesus begins with the fact that he is God's son. This will be explained and clarified in the time ahead. Sonship can come through procreation or through adoption. But we get a hint at where Paul is leading with this next thought, which says, Jesus, born of the seed of David. David. Okay? according to the flesh. If he says according to the flesh, then he must be having something else on his mind, right? If he is born of, of David according to the flesh, 
then we just leave it at that and we wouldn't have to include the words according to the flesh. But he included those words to mean that he is born of something else in some other way as well, okay? Um, according to the flesh. Where was I? Um, uh, okay, uh, this then tells us as the Gospels, Acts, and surely the entire Bible tells us, <coughs> excuse me, that Jesus was born into the stream of humanity. Of the seed of David ensures that we understand he, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises. These include everything from Genesis 3.15 through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. David was the final peg in the line of promises, and it is through his house, the house of David, that the realization of these promises would come about. We read of the Lord's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, which I'll read to you real quickly. We've got five more minutes. 2 Samuel 7, two, ah, just what a word he's given us. And we'd rather sit at home and watch TV. 2 Samuel uh, 7, 12 through 16. Wonderful words. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Anybody can come from a body all the way down through the generations. I come from the body of Adam. I come from the body of um, uh, uh, Japheth. I come from, in other words, everybody comes from a body and that can mean anybody all the way down. Um, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Okay, did Jesus ever sin? No. Was he beaten with rods of the sons of men? He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay? He never sinned, and yet he bore our sin. That's what that's referring to. All right? Um, uh, he was willing to, in essence, even though he didn't commit inequity, and I don't want to eat, give you even a hint of that, he was willing to take our place for having committed iniquity. Everybody got that? He was willing to do that. That's what this is speaking of. He did not sin in of himself. He took our sin for us. He took okay. on. He, did not he took take on. Him. That's right. He took on our sin for us. All right. Thank you. That's a good way of saying it. Um, I will chase him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Shaul, whom I re removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now so, read the next verse. Okay, the next verse. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And. Okay, and yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of manner of man, O Lord God? Yeah. We're not worthy of this. Unworthy, and that's exactly right. Um, okay, we got one more minute, and then we're going to have to... So, oh, we'll finish this. Yeah, one more sentence. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies and promises, just as Paul notes in this early verse, noting that this established, noting this establishes the coming context of the epistle. Okay, so we'll go into his deity and everything else in the, the verses ahead, but it could not be clear that he is showing that he is fully man, he's fully God, he is the bridge between the finite and the infinite. He is the mercy seat. He is the point where God meets right between the cherubim. And thank God for Jesus Christ. So we need to, yes. Even something I saw a while back where when Jesus was on the cross and Pontius Pilate put the mocking plaque on the cross. Oh, yes. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Yes. 
there's a translation from the Latin where they just drop the first letter. Enri. Well, you're thinking, Enri. yes, Enri and then, is... Um, and uh, then when that gets translated into um, the language of Hebrew, the Jews, right. Hebrew, it's amazing that it comes out Yahweh. Well, it doesn't exactly. Somebody had to force it. That was Missler who did that, and it, it doesn't exactly. What what he's saying is that um, uh, Yesu uh, Yod He uh, Ha Natsuroi um, Jesus of Nazareth uh, uh, Melech King of the Jews. They add in a Ha at the end, a He at the end, and they say and uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the King of the Jews. Um, it sure looks like Yahweh. It, it, it's very close, but they have to insert one hey in order to the and the right, king right, of the right. Jews. Right, right, right. There was one. Vav, oh, I'm sorry, the vav. The vav. Yod hey vav hey. They have to, and it doesn't say. It has say to do with that little. No, that's a yod. That oh, would be his oh, name, oh, Jesus. You've got yod hey vav hey. And what they do is they say that it says Yeshua ha Natsurai, uh, ha yeah, um Jesus of Nazareth, oh, uh, Ha-Melechim, uh, and the king of the Jews. Anyway, this here, this Vav, they have to say, it says, and, and it doesn't say it in the Gospels. And so, Missler did, he, he added that in. The, the it, point it they were making was that when you came to the temple and brought your sacrifice, you always put a band on its collar so that your family got credit for that sacrifice, so that God, getting that sacrifice, would look down and see that your family was credited for that sacrifice. That would be a Jewish tradition. That's and, not in the Bible. A Jewish tradition, yes. Right. Okay. But that's what he was making the point of. God put that label where Pontius Pilate had intended it to be a mocking of the Jews. Of the Jews. Right. God had a way supernaturally of it actually being a tag pointing, of Yahweh. Pointing of Christ. That, that being God. That's right. But I just want to make sure that that there is, it, it's actually not recorded in the Greek of that. So we, we can't know that for sure. I just want to qualify that I, I have seen that and it very much interests me. But it is. It, it is. is. It's very much interesting that it would say if that Vav belongs there and King of the Jews, then it would say Yahweh there. But the Vav is not in the Greek Testament and it's also not in the, uh, you know, the, the Hebrew translation of it. But if everybody understands what he's saying is that if you look at what's written in Hebrew above his name, it would look like Jehovah. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the Vav, which is man, is there on the cross anyway, so it's the sixth number. So one way or another it could be, but I just don't want to take Missler's work and say that is uh, something that we can be definitive with in Scripture because, you know, it, people tweak things, and I, I, I just... To make I, it fit. we we got to be careful with that, but Christ is the man on the cross, so there you go. Anyway, um, let's... Uh, do you pray? Yes. Would you pray us out? <laughs> do I pray? Well, I, no, I mean, some people... We always ask that when we go out in mission work, because sometimes somebody will come along and we don't want to embarrass them. That's, oh, what, that's no, all. That doesn't okay. embarrass me at all. all right. I'm pleased to be part of this body. In fact, uh, <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this body, and we thank you for this time, the provision that we all have to be here, and, and we thank you for the, the teaching that is done through Charlie, and we, we are grateful for this spoken word today. We ask that it be applied to our hearts. Uh, this Bible study doesn't just last for this short period of time. We have the other six days of the week we go out and, and have a chance to apply it, Father God. And we ask that you apply not only these lessons, but what we do on our own searches and within our own churches. And we thank you, uh, Heavenly Father, for everybody that's in this room. Yes. We ask uh, blessings on those that could not make it. And we 
thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank Charlie, you. Let me. Yes. What I've seen on cars this symbol that's like a, this and it's got a little thing. You know what that is? A bumper sticker? It, it, it looks like a what? It, it just looks like a little thing and it's got a little dash at the top like a. You know, it's it, it's either Arabic. Or oh yeah, what it is is it's identifying with Christians who are being persecuted by ISIS. Okay. Oh. Yeah, it, it's a Christian symbol that. Yeah, it's a way of identifying our Christianity with okay. them. Anyway, I've got that back. So go ahead and wave goodbye to everybody. It's okay. back there. But anyway, um, okay, we love y'all and we hope you have a most wonderful night. Okay, yeah. we'll see you later.